Amen. Amen. While you're being seated this morning, we invite our little ones who would like to go to Children's Church. Miss Kim is at her post and ready to serve us there. And so they're welcome to make their way down to Children's Church this morning. And while they're doing that, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word or maybe turn on your device and, uh, to 1 John. 1 John. We're working as a church through the book of 1 John. Uh, and so we're excited to uh, continue that journey. And so uh, those of you that are joining us online, we're grateful for you participating in this journey. But we're in 1 John. 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 2, verse 18 this morning. Uh, and so while you're turning there... One of the things that uh, I've had the privilege to do, and I, and I know many of you have as well, is, is travel to other countries, to other cultures, to other settings. And whenever you travel to other cultures or other settings, there's a couple of things that you need to understand or uh, come in grips with to make your travel better. A couple of those are eating habits. you got to figure out what are we eating and will that be okay with me? Am I going to sustain life over this food? The second one, and, and this one goes really good with the first one, don't giggle too loud, but you've got to know how to ask for the bathroom, all right? That when, you're, when you're traveling in other countries, you've got to make sure you understand that. But a third one, and one that's most often overlooked, especially from us coming from a Western culture, is you've got to understand time. Now, I don't mean the time zone or what time it is on the wall. When you're traveling in other settings, you've got to understand how that culture views time. You see, in America, we are very deadline-driven. We base everything on the clock. If you're five minutes late, you're late. If the professor's five minutes late, we're walking out, right? Like, we base it on time. But in other cultures, sometimes time is a suggestion, it's a, a thought, maybe. I had the privilege of going down into South America and preaching in a village in uh, Venezuela, and they invited me to preach and said the service starts at 10. Well, being new to the village, being new to the area, being the guest preacher, I showed up at 9.30, 9.45, making sure I was in plenty of time. The door was still locked. There was nobody there. About 10 o'clock, the pastor comes up, opens the door, he greets me, he's very pleasant. We talk for a while, 10.15, 10.30, people start coming in, the band starts playing some, there's singing, there's praying, there's visiting, there's ladies preparing lunch for after church. There's a lot going on, but it didn't start at 10 o'clock like they told me. In fact, the service, as we might understand it, didn't start till about 11.30, 11.45. I didn't get up to preach till about 1 o'clock. I was about to eat my liver right there on the stage. It's not their fault. I didn't understand the time. I didn't know how they operated. I was on a construction trip down in Venezuela, and uh, we were going to build, and we needed supplies. And they said, your supplies will be there after lunch. Now, for those of us in this culture, after lunch means 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock at the latest. If you're not there by 2.30, we're calling you, right? After lunch, right after we've eaten. Well, in this village in Venezuela, after lunch, 12 to 3, everything closed. The gas stations, the restaurants, the hot... You couldn't get stitches between 12 and 3. Everything closed. The supplies showed up about 5 o'clock after lunch. You have to understand the time. This morning, if you were to look in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2, here's what John will say. We're in the last hour. Now, he's not talking about the clock on the wall. He's not counting down 60 minutes. He's wanting us to see the time and understand it, not as we would view it on the wall, but as God views time. 
He's drawing us into a conversation and he's saying, church, listen, the time is at hand. Know the season. He's not asking us to define the chronological clock. He's asking us to see the spiritual clock. He's asking us to see God's clock. And he draws us in and he says, church, we're in the last hour. We might say it something like this. It's nearing sunset. The day is drawing to an end. We find ourselves closing in on the finish line. He will say to us in verse 18, you know we're in the last hour. John will draw us into this conversation of the last hour in order to warn us, in order to give us some perspective on what is coming and what we can expect because we're in the last hour. He will use this term in this idea that there is a cosmic battle between good and evil. There is a world between the devil and God that is fighting. And make no mistake, and we'll get there in a moment, the war is over, God has won, but the battle is still going. And we are in the midst of it. And as we draw to the end of the war, as we draw to the moment where Christ will make everything right, John is warning us and saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. There will be problems before Christ comes. And so what John is doing is he is soberly looking at us, grabbing us by the ears, as my grandmother would say, and saying... Look at the clock. Stare at the time. Understand what's going on. Join me in your copy of God's Word in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, know that it is the last hour. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, they might not, that it might be become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. You will have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too shall abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. Let's pray together, church family. Lord, help us see the time. Help us, Lord, have an urgency and an understanding of where we are in your uh, clock of eternity. God, help us to, to realize that it's not about today or tomorrow. It's not about minutes on the watch. It's about how you view time. God, help us. Help us see with heavenly perspective where we are on the calendar. Father, I, I pray this morning as we walk through this text, we'll be reminded that because we're nearing the end, because we're, we're nearing the moment of your return, that, that the war is raging, that Satan will sling all that he can at his, 
his, at your church, at, at your people, that he will continue to try to steal, kill, and destroy, that, that, Father, we must stand our ground, we must hold to the truth, we must persevere in the Spirit. Help us, Lord. Help us. Father, many of us walk in this room not giving much thought to the last hour, not giving much thought to the battle that rages around us. We we are so consumed with our to-do list and our school and work and mowing the grass that we forget that there is a, a spiritual realm, that there is a battle, that there is an end that's coming, that Christ is around the corner. God, press it on our hearts. Give us an urgency, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was once discussing with Nanny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, about preaching, and he said, Corey, there are, there's one topic that when I announce I'm preaching on always draws a crowd. He said, the last uh, days, the end times. Whenever people start to talk about the end times, believers particularly, but also those that are in and around the church are, are curious about what will happen. Most of us draw our uh, theology from the end times based on what some preacher said or some really, really bad movie starring Kirk Cameron. The idea is, if you don't know about it, Google it, all right? The idea is, is that we, we don't really understand a lot of it, and there's a lot of speculation. And, and let me just for a moment say that there are usually two errors that happen to believers when we think about the end times, the time when the Lord will return. There's usually two errors that take place. The first error is we think too much about it. And by that, I simply mean we fall for conspiracy theories. We find those men or women who live their life combing through the Bible, and somehow or another they've read the Bible, they've added up the number of verses, they subtract them from the date, they check the sun and the moon, and they tell you exactly when Jesus will return. My Hebrew professor would call that baloney, hogwash in the Greek, right? It doesn't make sense, but we spend too much time over it. We comb over it. We're told that every shade of the sky means something. We're supposed to study moons because apparently they bleed, right? And we're supposed to know what that means. That We see people with charts and things. We, we get consumed by this idea that the Lord is coming back. I, I saw one person the other day was reading some article and they were talking about how masks and vaccinations are the mark of the beast. Brothers and sisters, if you've come to that conclusion, you've not read your Bible, all right? That's foolishness. But we get caught up in it and we find ourselves being thrown in that direction. But the second error is probably even more pre prevalent. And that's simply this. We don't think about it at all. We don't have an urgency about the fact that Jesus is returning at any moment. And even if Jesus lingers, one day you'll stand before God. And so we don't have an urgency. We don't think enough about it. We don't let it inform our decision. We don't wake up thinking this might be the day. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning as I look out over this church, here's what I want to press in on you. I don't want to get lost in the conspiracy theories of what the end times will be. I want to get lost in this idea. There is an urgency that Christ is around the corner. That Christ is around the corner. And the gospel compels us to be urgent with the message. And so what John is doing is John is saying, listen, because Christ is around the corner, I need to inform you of a few things. And in fact, he will warn us. He will warn us that because Christ is around the corner, great deception will try to come into the church. Great problems will come into the church. Why? Because Satan is throwing, as my mother would say, everything in the kitchen sink at us, right? That, that Jesus is around the corner. He's about to be banished forever. And so therefore, like a wounded animal, he is chomping at the bit to harm everyone he can and destroy their happiness in the Lord. And so what John does in John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, is he gives us guidance against deception. 
He warns us about what will come into the church in these last hours, what we will face as believers. And in this warning, he gives us kind of three ideas or three truths in how to fight this deception, what we must do to guard against being deceived. So let me give those to you this morning. Number one, to guard against deception, we must watch out for false teachers. We must watch out for false teachers. We must watch out for those who would twist the the name of Jesus. Let, Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at verse 18 first. Let's hear John's love. Notice how he starts the word. He says, children. Your Bible might even say little children or beloved. That's a term of affection. John is writing to people he loves. He cares about them. He's warning them because it's a good thing. Any of us who have children or grandchildren, any of us who care for someone else, we know that warning can be a good thing. We warn them not to do something that's dangerous. And so what John is doing is he's warning the church because he loves them. Now notice how he warns them. Look with me at the text. Let's see the words together. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. In our modern terminology, we might say we're in the home stretch or the fourth quarter has started. We find ourselves nearing the day of the Lord's return. Now, let me understand with you this uh, theological idea of last hour. Uh, some of the New Testament writers would say last days, but here is the goal. Here's the idea. Please don't miss this so you understand where we are in the unfolding of history. Jesus Christ came and walked this earth and defeated Satan, death, hell, and the, cro- uh, the grave by dying on the cross and being buried and resurrecting from that tomb. And from that very moment, the death blow of Satan was delivered. The start, if you will, of the end times began there. As he ascended into heaven, he tells his disciples, just as you saw him leave through the angel, he will return. And so listen now, everything in Scripture has unfolded. We had the prophets, we had the coming of the Messiah, we had the Messiah telling us of the gospel, we had the Messiah telling us he will return, we have the Messiah looking at the church and saying, until I return, here's what you are to be doing. And so now the stage is set, we're in the last hour, we've kicked it off, and the Lord can return at any moment. And so we find that when Jesus ascended into heaven, the clock for his descension had begun. So John says we're in this last hour. Now, I understand the irony. John says we're in the last hour, and it's been 2,000 years since he wrote this. I understand the irony of that. I understand that we're in the last hour, and people have come and gone for centuries after centuries after centuries. But listen now, make no mistake, God is not combined into time. God is not controlled by time. And you might find yourself saying, well, I've heard this before, but it won't happen to me. You don't know God's timing. You don't know God's ways. So, brothers and sisters, would it not be wise for us to wake up each day thinking, this is the last minute? of the last hour. This is the last moment of the last hour. I'm not sure if it'll be in my lifetime. I'm not sure if it'll be in my children's lifetime. I'm not sure if it'll be in their great, 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 great grandchildren's lifetime. But I know this, in the eternity that is God, these last hours are fleeting. They are small. And so we must be willing to understand that we're in this moment of urgency. Now, what does he tell us here? Here's where we get into some of this idea of what we're bound to see. Look at verse 18. He actually gives a circular argument. He says, we're in the last hour, and you know we're in the last hour because the Antichrist have come, and we're in the last hour because you see the Antichrist. He's, he's giving proof to his argument. He says, here's how you know we're in the last hour. There's a lot of people trying to pull you away from the truth. 
There's a lot of people trying to get you to move away from God, move away from Christ. You, you can see one of the proofs that we're in this end time, this last hour, because there are those who are working against the very Jesus that's about to return. There are those who are trying to deceive all along the way. Notice what he says in verse 18. As you know, as you have heard, the Antichrist, now he means there the one. He says Antichrist is coming. That means the one. Paul would refer to him in Thessalonians as a man of lawlessness. Revelation 13 would call him a beast that is known by 666. We understand a little bit of that. But he says there's one coming. There is an Antichrist that will set himself up as God and rule over the world and try to convince people to follow him. But then notice the second part, and here's where we land today. So now many Antichrists have come. He says, brothers and sisters, you know we're in the end times because there are so many people fighting against Jesus. You know we're nearing the end because there are so many people that are adamantly against the Savior. You know it must be soon that He's returning because they're working so hard to convince you that He's not coming. They're working so hard to convince you that it's not true. They're working so hard to convince you that you don't need this Jesus. He says, you know it must be true that we're in this last hour because the forces are against them. We see this in any area of our life. We understand that when something is going good, there will be those that will attack it. When we see the name of Christ and the glory of Christ coming soon, now we know that the, Satan is working to pull it away. And so he says there are many antichrists that have come into the world. Look with me at that word antichrist. It's not hard to define. It's antichrist. It are those that are against the Lord Jesus, those who have not believed him, that have not confessed him, but go a step further. This is not just a marker for unbelievers. There are many unbelievers in the world that are indifferent to Christ. And unfortunately and painstakingly, there are many unbelievers in the world that don't even know of Christ. What he is describing here are those that have heard the truth of Christ and decided to disobey, to deny or to walk away. He is looking at the church and he's saying there was some who came into the church. They said the right stuff. They did the right thing. They walked among us. But it is painfully evident that they never met Christ. They never knew Christ. Look with me at verse 19. Here is the evidence. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they were not of us. They were against us. They were those who were working against Jesus. They were denying Jesus. Now, John has picked this up earlier in the text. If you were to go back up in chapter 2 and in chapter 1, what he's talking about is something happened to this church, probably here in Ephesus, where a group of sensationists have walked away. They've left the church. And they left the church because they denied the deity and the full manhood of Christ. They did not confirm or believe or attest to that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so John says they preached a different gospel. And because they preached a different gospel, it was clear they could not stay with us. They could not walk with us. And so they left us, and them leaving us is proof that they were following the wrong gospel. Now let us just take a side note there real quickly. Let me give you some truth here. If you believe the real Jesus, you'll be with real Jesus' family. If you love Jesus, you'll be with Jesus' family. You'll be with the church. You'll be with the people of God. You'll want to commune with them. But the evidence that they didn't really love Jesus was seen in the fact that they didn't care nothing about being with Jesus' people. And they walked away. They, they moved on from the text. So he says they are the Antichrist. You might say, well, John's being ugly. In fact, this word here is really only found in John's writing. He kind of coined the word Antichrist. He kind of made that up to show those that were against the Christ. But it's not uncommon. 
Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, there will be wolves that will come in disguised as sheep, but they're not of us. They're not teaching the truth. You think calling somebody a wolf's bad. Listen to what Paul calls them in Acts chapter 13, verse 9. It says this, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. Come on, Paul, tell us how you feel, right? Like, why, don't you, why don't you tell us what you're thinking, Paul? You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now, Paul, in all of his zeal and muster, looks at one who's come into the church and taught something opposite of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, death, burial, and resurrection, and he says, if you teach that, you are a son of the devil. You are not part of us. You are not with us. You are anti-Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, let us for just a moment think to ourselves why this matters to us. Why does this matter that we must be on the lookout for those who are teaching something other than the gospel? First of all, let's start with this. Unity in the church is hard. Unity in the church is hard. Right now, sitting in this room and watching online are lots of Christian believers who come from different backgrounds, different educations, different economic upbringing, different ideologies, different uh, political parties. The church is made up of all kinds of people, men and women, some from here, some from there, with different experiences, and we're all trying to pursue God. And as we pursue God, our individual taste, our individual convictions, our individual thoughts will collide with one another. We will go together. We can see this in simple ways, right? We can see this in the, in the things that we prefer over others. We can see this in the way we, we choose things. Some of you want to paint your house some sort of white color because it looks pretty and pure. You obviously don't have children. Some of you want to get in your car and turn on heavy metal rock and roll where you can't understand a word. Some of you don't have hearing, right? Now, some of you are more inclined to like God's music, Patsy Cline, right? That's the idea. You, you know that. So some of you cheer for one team and some of you cheer for the right team. But we understand that, right? We have, I'm, I'm being funny here, we have differences. We have differences. And in the church, unity is important, which means we have to be selfless. We have to bend without breaking. We have to uh, give to one another. But, but listen now, don't miss this. John says in verses 18 and 19 that if you get Jesus wrong, there is no unity. There are some essential doctrines to the church where unity will not be held. And if you get Jesus wrong, John tells us in Mar in John, here in verse 18 and 19, we mark them and we separate from them for you cannot hold unity around anyone who will not unify around Christ and Christ alone. And so he presses on us that, yes, there is much in the church we must fight for unity over and give up our preferences and be willing to say, I'm not sure or I don't know. But we will never, no, never give up on saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so he presses on us and he says, this is a non-negotiable doctrine. You must hold to Christ. Notice with me how he uses the terminology. Look in your verses 18 and 19. They, us. They went out from us. They were not of us. He's marking the team. He's being very clear. There are those who are with Christ and those that are not with Christ. And he is very clear to mark them, to show them, to say, this will not stand. And so let me help you for just a moment before we leave this thought. And that's simply this. How do you spot a false teacher? 
based on this text that we read here. There, there's a couple of things I would give you, just, just three ideas quickly. Uh, number one, a false teacher will always work to separate the church. They'll always work to go out from the church. They won't stay a part of the normal church. They'll try to do something different. You can trace this all through history. You can see Joseph Smith, who had seizures and visions and decided to launch a brand new church, which is called Mormonism, a cult, not a church. We, we see this in the, in the modern day where people will go out from the church and say, well, I, I'm tired of the church. We need something new or fresh or different. And, and they begin to move in a theological direction that does not match the tradition of church. And, and I don't mean church as in Elkdale. I mean church as in the faith that has been handed down from the apostles. But you can always notice that a false teacher will be one who will separate from the traditional doctrines that's been confessed since the apostles. It will move out from the church. The second way you can spot a false teacher is simply this. Not only will they move out from it, but they'll deny the truth of Scripture. Uh, look with me at verse 24 quickly. Just let your eyes scan down. Here's what it says. It says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. John uses this word beginning a lot in his writing. It is for two reasons. One, it is to echo to the fact that the apostles were the first testimony of Christ. So the apostles have told them from the very beginning of Jesus and the gospel. And this is the true source. They are the source of the story. But he also uses that word beginning so that we hearken back to the idea of Genesis 1, that in the beginning God was already there, or John 1, that in the beginning Jesus was already there. And so he's reminding us of this totality of the complete story of God we find from Genesis to Revelation. And so simply this, you can mark a false teacher because they will move away from this truth, the truth of the word. Now, brothers and sisters, there are many who are not false teachers, but they handle the word poorly. They make much of preaching, but not much of Jesus. And so they make much of, of their speech, but they not make much of the word. So let me help you here. Let me, let me help guard you here. We live in a day and age where you can find any pastor you want to and listen to them at any moment. You can read all of their books, find their blogs. You can do all of those things. And there are some wonderful men of God preaching the word that I listen to often. But if you're listening to someone and they reference more of themselves than the scripture they reference more stories than the verses. They tell you to close your Bible while they speak. Walk away. Walk away. Why? Because one of the marks of a teacher that will lead you astray is they turn from what they've heard from the beginning. Thirdly, and finally, how do you spot a false teacher? They simply reject Jesus. They reject Jesus. Verse 22. Notice what it says. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. They reject Jesus. They turn from Jesus. Now, when we say this, we must make sure we define the terms. They reject the Bible Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture. There are many who will claim Jesus, but they don't know the one of the Bible. We ourselves here in Selma some 10 years ago had a group move in and began to tell us how they were doing something different for the Lord. And then as you pressed and asked questions, here is the great fallacy that they would tell you. They would say to you that Jesus was a man until God touched him with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that's heresy. That is the denial of Jesus. So you can spot a false teacher in those Ways Now, let me close this first point by saying this. As we draw near to the Lord, listen now, don't miss this. We cannot afford to get this wrong. Listen now, just, just let your mind's eye imagine for just a moment that in just a few minutes, the trumpet will sound, the sky will roll back, and Jesus, not on a, a donkey headed for death, but on a horse headed for conquering, will appear. Jesus, 
The sky will split and the angels will sing and Jesus will appear. The last hour is upon us. We cannot get the gospel wrong. You do not want to get to that moment and stare at Jesus and go, I thought, I felt, boy, I wished I had done this. You want to know because of the word of God that you have met the true Christ. So this leaves me two thoughts on this point that I must give you. One, we must have an urgency. An urgency for the gospel. An urgency to proclaim the good news. An urgency that the last hour is here, that looming over the church is the impending return of Christ. We must have an urgency. Moms and dads, you must have an urgency for the soul care of your children. You must have an urgency for your spouse. You must have an urgency for your neighbor. You must have an urgency for the co-worker. You must have an urgency for the stranger that you see in the store. You must have an urgency for the nations who've yet to hear the name of Jesus. We must have an urgency Lord could return and time is no more. Listen to me now. Listen to me. You, you think you're making decisions based on what makes you happy. And you say, well, I'll fix that later. I'll do what's right down the road. I, I want to go to college and have a little fun. I want to have some adult fun now that I have freedom. I, I want to do what I want to do. I wanna, I've hit midlife. I deserve my crisis. Right? You, you think you, you want to do those things. Listen to me. We're in the last hour. It could be any moment. We must have an urgency. Secondly, let me give it to you this way. Let me use the urgency to encourage you. Oh, brother or sister, we're in the last hour. We're in the last hour. That means as bad as we think the world may be, Jesus is around the corner. As tired as I am of being beat down, Jesus is around the corner. As so tired of answering the phone and saying, this one died, and this one's got cancer, and this family's broken, and this child's going crazy. As tired as I am of hearing those things, I can tell you with all encouragement, Jesus is around the corner. He's coming. So there's a great urgency and a great encouragement. We must we must watch out for false teachers because we can't get this wrong. No, number two, and we've got to move quickly. To guard against deception, we must hold fast to the truth. We must hold fast to the truth. Look with me um, a little bit further down. Um, those verses are wrong on the screen. I apologize for that. Verse 20 through 23. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. You will have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23. No one who denies the Father, whoever confesses the Son, has the Father also. John says in verse 21, you know the truth. You have the truth. You know it. You know the story of Christ. You know that Jesus Christ was born of man, that he's fully God and fully man, that he came as the Son of God to live under the law, to carry the curse of sin to the cross, to be crucified in our place, to feel the wrath of God poured out on sin where we should have felt the wrath of God, to be buried in our tomb and to raise from the dead, which we could not do in order to gain for us salvation. And by faith, we are joined with him. Therefore, his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection and his eternal life is our eternal life. This is the truth of the gospel. And John says, you know it. You've heard it. I told you myself, John would say. I saw Jesus. I ran in the tomb. I know it's true. I've given you this. Hold 
to it. Now, why is this important? It's important for this reason. He tells us in verse 20, you have all knowledge. Now, he doesn't tell us that somehow or another when you come to Jesus, you get to stop pursuing Jesus. He's not telling us that somehow we've reached the pinnacle of our Christian education. That's not what he's doing. What he's pointing out to us is when you know Jesus, you know the story of salvation. You know the story of redemption. Therefore, now here's where it's important. You don't need someone else to give you something new or fresh. You have the story of Jesus. You have the word that's tested and true. You don't need someone coming claiming some new revelation. You have the story of the apostles written down for us so that we may know Christ. And he reminds us, he reminds us here that in the last days we cannot get off of this. There is an urgency in the church to be more pragmatic, to try to reach more people with flashy ways and new ideas. And there's nothing wrong with new ideas for presenting the gospel to a culture that's constantly changing. But we will never present a gospel to a culture that's not the gospel of the Bible. We'll never compromise Christ because that does them no good. To soften Jesus leads sinners to a comfortable hell, which will not be comfortable. And so therefore, we must hold to this truth. And what is the truth? That Christ is the center of the gospel. The Dutch reform writer who was a theologian, Harman Barvik, writes it this way. He says, Christ is Christianity itself. He stands not outside of it, but the center. Without his name, person, and work, there is no Christianity left. In a word, Christ does not point out the way to salvation. He is the way itself. Now, you might say, well, I believe that, Pastor. I know that's true. I know that everybody without Jesus is is lost. I know that for the Muslim in Iran and for the Buddhist in Asia. I get it. For the Mormon in Utah, they need the real Jesus. I get it. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that for your spouse and your child and your neighbor and your coworker? It's easy for us to paint with a big brush all the lost people out there that don't know Jesus. But listen to me now. Just because your granddaddy's moral, just because your granddaddy drove you to church and dropped you off, if he doesn't know Jesus, he's in trouble. Just because your spouse is kind and has an old Bible on her shelf, if she doesn't know Jesus, she's in trouble. We hold to the truth and we don't budget. Just because you show up to church week after week after week after week, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the truth. And the last hour is coming. The urgency must rest on our shoulders. We must hold to the truth of Jesus. Notice verse 20. I want to give you some encouragement in this. He says, but you have been anointed... By the Holy One. The Holy One here would be Christ or God the Father who, when ascended into heaven, sent down the Holy Spirit. The anointing here is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians would refer to it as being baptized in the Spirit. I want you to understand something. I want to be clear with you. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are received the Holy Spirit. Every Christian comes to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't know Christ unless the Spirit has worked in your heart to convict you of sin and point you to the cross. And receiving Christ, the Holy Spirit is deposited, as Paul would say, into your heart. You have the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? It's important for this reason. There will be those who come into the church, who come into the culture of Christianity, and they will say, the Spirit told me, the Spirit said, or you need the Spirit, or I wish you could get the Spirit. And here's what you need to say to that person. I have Jesus, therefore I have the Spirit. I need no fresh word. I need no fresh anointing. I need nothing else from anyone other than the Word of God, the Apostles' testimony, and the Holy Spirit. 
Listen now, because this is prevalent in our culture in Dallas County. Listen now as I talk to you as a pastor who loves you. Moving from place to place, expecting some sinful person to give you some anointed word from God while ignoring your Bible and the very spirit that lives inside of you is sinful. It's heretical. It is not the gospel of the apostles. The gospels of the apostles is that when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. There is not a secret level to Christianity. You have the testimony of the gospel. You don't need someone to give you something different. You just need to stick to the old path of the gospel of the apostles once delivered. This is the message, brothers and sisters. So don't go looking for fresh anointing from some feeble sinner when you're holding the perfect word of God and the spirit of God is indwelling your heart. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. And and might we add this? Because the Christian has the Holy Spirit, the spirit will never lead you away from Christ. You find yourself drifting from Christ, that ain't the spirit in your life. That's the flesh and sin warring against you. The spirit come to reveal Christ, to show Christ. It won't pull you away from it. You know the truth. Number three, we must hold to the truth. And then finally, to guard against deception, we must persevere in the Spirit. This word persevere is a funny word. It's using in the term abide. Look with me at verses 24 through 27. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide. There it is in you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you when you too will abide the Son of God and the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and it is not a lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now notice that word abide. Let's, let's think about that for a moment. The word abide literally means actively staying put. Actively staying put. My children have this ability. They can actively stay put. When I give them a command to do, they're working hard to abide in. That's a little bit funny. Come on, people. I've been yelling the whole time. Let's laugh a little, right? Abide. It means actively staying put. Now, now why does he write this word abide? Because when we're saved by the work of the Spirit and the truth of Christ, when we're saved through Jesus and Jesus alone, and, and notice in the text, he says, you don't get the Father if you don't have Jesus. Anyone who knows the Son knows the Father. The way to God is through Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus would say. So, so when you come to Christ and you have the Father, he says, now actively work to stay in Christ. Now, he's not saying that somehow you will lose your salvation. You cannot lose something that you did not gain. Jesus Christ saves us. Jesus Christ gets the glory of salvation. Jesus Christ was the one who went to the cross and died and rose from the grave. Corey did not go to the cross. Corey did not come out of the grave. Corey only brought sin to the equation. Jesus did the work of salvation. So when Jesus saves you, you are saved. This is why Jesus would say, nothing can take me from the hand of God. My sheep hear my voice and I will lead them home. You are not going to lose your salvation, but in the sovereignty of God, when you are saved, there is still work to be done in our faith. There is still be work to be done in our sanctification. And so what does he tell us to do? He says, actively plant your feet and do not move from Jesus. Actively plant your feet and abide in Jesus. Don't listen to every toss To and fro of the winds. Don't listen to the silver-tongued speaker or the cool video. Don't listen to the friend who comes to give you a testimony that's not in line with the Word of God. Don't listen. Actively work 
to remain in the Lord. He says, abide, stay, stay there. Jesus would tell us through the Apostle Peter in his letter to the church, test every spirit. Examine everything by the word of the Lord. Make sure you're holding to that place. Jude would write in Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 3, he would say these words, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says the story of the gospel. Stay there. Don't move from it. Hold your feet in the truth. So how do we do this? How do we persevere in the spirit? Well, first we hold to the truth. We don't move from the gospel. We don't move from the good news. We stay there from what we have heard from the beginning. And then we abide in this spirit. We remain in the spirit. And notice what happens when we remain in the spirit. Look with me at verse 25. Let's, let's smile a little. Look at verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Now think about it for a moment. When, when I use the term last hour, it, it, can, it can feel scary. It can feel uncertain. God may come back. I might, I might see Jesus. What, what if He knows what I've done? What if, he, what if He knows how I'm thinking? What about all the plans I've made for the next 15, 20, 30 years? What, I, I'm, I'm, I, this makes me feel uneasy. I'm not sure about that. Notice what He says. To the believer... To the one who has the Son and the Father, when you hear last hour, here's what you need to hear, eternal life. When you hear last hour, you need to hear forever secured at the table of the Lord. When you hear last hour, you need to hear basking in the Son of Christ in the heavenly realm where the gates are never closed, the streets are lined with gold, and the feast never ends. Where the worship of the saints goes on and on and on. Where no tear is allowed and no death gets in the door. You need to hear eternal life. You know what this means? This means I don't have to be persuaded to think that all my eggs are in the baskets of politics because i got eternal life. I don't have to put all my hope in health and wealth. Why? Because the, the world can throw me uh, broke bank accounts and a riddled body. i got eternal life. I don't have to put all my joy in the family that I want or the structure that I have or the pleasing of the world or the applause of a neighbor. Why? Because i got eternal life. I have put all my hope in the fact that Jesus has given me eternal life. He's blessed me for all eternity. So when I hear last hour, when I hear last days, you know what I think? Oh man, it's about to start. The celebration is about to begin. Fire up the crowd. Get the choir singing. Jesus is around the corner. Eternal life. Not death. Life. So verse 28 reminds us. We should be ready. Listen to verse 28 and we'll close. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame as his coming. You want to know the best way to be ready for Christ? Act like he's here now. Walk with him today. Commune with him. Stay with him. Because you know what will happen? If you find yourself communing with Christ on a daily basis, abiding with Christ on a regular basis, you know what will happen? When He appears, it might not be quite as big a shock. It'll just be He moved closer. It'll be that He just ended up in the same room with you. That it won't. It, now, now, let's be real here. It's going to be a shock. 
But, but maybe not quite as big a shock because you've already been preparing for his return. You've already cleaned the house. You've already put on the pot of coffee, if you will. You, you're waiting for him to show up. Like a kid counting down Christmas, you've hung all the stockings and decorated all the tree and, and you're just waiting. Why can't we do that as believers? Why can't we live our lives knowing this might be the day and I want to be prepared? I want to be ready. I want to wait and see the Lord return. Brothers and sisters, let, let me press in on you for just a moment. The king will summon all of us one day. For some of us, it may be before this week ends. No man knows the hour. No man knows the day. Some of you may not make it to next Sunday sermon. I may not make it to next Sunday sermon. The king's going to summon us. Whether through death or through his return, the king will call everyone home. And we will stand before him. And the only way in which the king grants you eternal life is through confession of his son, Jesus Christ. The only entrance into the kingdom is Christ. And so first, my plea is for you. If you're here this morning and this might be your last day, this might be your last hour, do you know Christ? Will He welcome you into the kingdom? Will the Father let you in? Because the text tells us the only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. You must know the Son if you want to know the Father. You cannot separate the two. Do you know Christ? Secondly, let me press in on you that would say, yes, I know Christ. Can I ask you a question? Are you ready to see Him? What if it was now? What if it was right now? Are you ready to see Him? Are you living a life that says, Lord Jesus, I'm ready for you to come. My house is in order. I'm living for you. I'm abiding in your word. I'm standing on your truth. I'm ready to see you. And that leads to a third question, and that's simply this. Are the people in your life ready to see him? Have you told your children, your neighbor, your friend, that they too need Jesus? Or they won't have eternal life? Let's bow our heads for a moment and contemplate those questions. The first one is an invitation. If you don't know Jesus, brother or sister, I tell you, we're in the last hour. It could be any moment. Let today be the day you come to Jesus. Maybe you hear this morning, you say, I, I'm with Jesus, but I'm just not, I'm not living right. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to enjoy life. I'm trying to live it to the fullest. I'm trying to sow my wild oats. I'm, I'm worried about my retirement, my home, my the college where I'm going to get to go and party. I, I'm worried about finding the right girl. I, I'm worried about all of these other things. Listen to me now. The most sobering thing you can do is wake up each day knowing this might be the day I see Jesus. Because I promise you when you stand before Jesus, you won't be able to stutter and say, well, Lord, I wanted to do some other things first. Are you prepared to see Him? Christian, are you living in a way that's ready to say, maybe today it's simply just you need to confess your sin. Not to me, not to someone else, though I, I will listen and pray for you, but you need to fall before the Savior and confess your sin. You need to change your ways. You need to work harder at abiding, at staying put in Jesus. And then finally, maybe you're here this morning and you know someone, they're not ready. 
You need to cry out to the Lord and pray for them. You need to beg God to save them, break, his, break their heart by the Spirit. You need to go and be a witness. Whatever the case may be, I, I pray this morning you will, uh, you will deal with this topic of the last hour. Father, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing, and now is our chance to respond. For those that are watching online, Lord, I pray that, that, that you're stirring in their heart as well. Father, for those that are in the room, some will come and need to pray at this altar. Some may need me to pray with them. Some may need to grab the hand of a brother or sister and confess their sin. Some may need to pray for a person they know that's lost in the last hours upon them. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I, I pray today we will feel the urgency that eternal life is around the bend. Father, bless us now as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You come if the Lord leads.